0: the Sword of Christian Theology and the Shield of Apologetics, while taking truth into the arena of ideas, you are listening to the Bellator Christi Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristi.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and Ronan, Montana. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. And our verse for this podcast comes to us from Matthew chapter twelve, verses twenty-five verse twenty-five says, Every kingdom divided against itself is heading for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: There it is, folks. That's the that's the Chips theme song. That's the that's the very show that made the Chips sunglasses famous and popular in this today's culture. You see all these kids walking around with with the, these big Chips sunglasses. They all came from that TV show. <laughs> remember that
0: show, Brian? Oh yeah, I used to watch it all the time. I really I remember that. <laughs> and you gotta love that little yeah, '70s I, vibe to it.
1: <laughs> oh man, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brings back so many memories, the uh, things that I watched back in the day. My goodness, yeah, uh, fun stuff. So today we're we're digging into our uh, next level of our of our series that we've got, and uh, I sure hope that that the, the followers of Bellator Christie podcast have been listening in and catching in with the first and the second and the third. Today, we're going to be covering something that is, that, that is a solid, true, foundational thing that we really need to. And, and here's the thing. Today's culture of the, the progressive Christianity really kind of bites back at this particular uh, portion that we're going to be talking about. So let's go ahead and dig right in, because I know it's going to be a long one, um, but we're talking today about um, the, the theories of atonement in our Christology uh, podcast, or series. Let's go ahead and do that then, Brian.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Curtis, I, I think I've mentioned before, and if not, it's, it's due time that I do. Whenever I took systematic theology in times past, I always thought that Theology proper, how we view God, view God, uh, really made the difference between orthodoxy and and, and heresies, and, and really was the foundation. And I still think that the, that our belief in God matters; it's very important. But I have to say that Christology, when when you're looking at orthodoxy versus false notions, false religions, and even um, I would even say misunderstandings and and even growing into cultic uh type of uh, behaviors come from a false understanding of Christ, a false understanding mm. of what he did and what the atonement means. And um the atonement is is critically important and it, and you're right, it's absolutely critical, vital that we get this right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's that's uh that's something that you know as you think about it when when you're always talking about um, talking with people about the gospel and talking to people about and engaging people with 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 the with talking about Jesus and the, and you'll run into this often with even uh, some new age thought or even um, the JWs or Mormons, they'll say, oh, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, he I, I believe in Jesus. The thing you got to make sure you're asking is which Jesus? Mm-hmm. What Jesus are we talking about here?
0: Absolutely, are we talking
1: about are we talking about God in flesh? Are we talking about you know their twist or turn on Jesus conscious or Christ consciousness? Or oh sure, or yeah. are we talking about you know all of those things we've covered in many many podcasts, and that's all so vital to understanding. Who Jesus is, and when when Christians talk about Christ, that is the foundation of our belief. Christ.
0: Absolutely, and, and I want to say that th- this podcast and Curtis, you pegged it right because there, there's so much to talk about when we talk about, especially the work of Christ in the atonement. That that these theories of the atonement it's going to require two podcasts to really cover this adequately, mm-hmm. and. On this podcast, what we want to do, just to kind of, just to kind of give you an idea of where we're going. On this podcast, we really want to, first of all, t- take a look at the, at the lay of the land. And we want to see what's out there. Uh, we want to take a look at the different theories pertaining to atonement. So in this podcast, that's what we're mainly going to be doing. We're going to look at the theories and just give some preliminary information about them and maybe handle just a few preliminary questions that we have on these things. But next podcast, the next podcast that we do on the atonement, that's where we're really going to get, really where the uh, the, the, the hammer meets the nail because we're going to look at the scriptures and then we're going to look back at these different theories to see which one holds holds the greatest amount of water now with that let me just add a little caveat here i think that all of these theories have some element of truth in them because quite frankly there are some of these theories that go through and i can say yeah i can see that but but the question at the end of the day is which one holds the greatest connection with with the scripture, which one holds the greatest in totality with the message of scripture, and that's we're going to kind of have to weigh these theories to see which one, which one is the the meatiest, which one is the heaviest, and uh, in in most in tune with uh, the biblical revelation of God.
2: Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
1: Perfect. So let's uh, let's go ahead and start out with what is the atonement.
0: So atonement is. Um, it, many people have said that this is maybe an English word maybe even a word made up for this very reason meaning at one meant you know being at one with God. Atonement conveys the idea of divine forgiveness and forgiveness is granted as the penitent, the person who is repentant of their sins. Uh, as their sins are removed and the person is turned from a state where they're under... Now, here again, understand that this this goes by certain theories and not others, but where a person is turned from a state of divine judgment to a state of divine grace. Um, And now, you know, we at Bellator Christi, we hold to non-Calvinist soteriology, so we believe that God desires to save everyone and that He's seeking to save the lost. And so... um, I just want to add that out there, and, we'll, and we'll, we'll talk more about that aspect as we go through some of the other areas of the atonement. But um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: But atonement means being made right with God, that the sin nature, the things that separate our relationship with God are paid for on God's part, are removed, and that we have full and complete access to God. Whatever that is that hinders us from God, that's been removed. And the question is, how is that removed? What is it that's removed? And how are we allowed access to God? And ultimately, a lot of this comes down to why did Jesus die on a cross, and what did he do on the cross, and even through the resurrection?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, we look at this, so to kind of put that into maybe a little bit more uh, meaty term, I guess you could say, is, and I had this wrote down, was, a a a a point where a person reconciles themselves with God in repentance and confession and transgression Mm -hmm. so I, I just wrote that down um it and I think we understand that that We we could never provide that atonement. We could never do that. That would be a workspace, works righteousness type religion Mm -hmm. at that point. In this, what we're talking about is we could never do that. Therefore, we had Christ provide the atonement
0: for us. Yeah, and I think if you look at the history of the covenants through the Scriptures, you see that very fact because God worked through di- different uh, dispensations of covenants throughout uh, the pages of the Old Testament. We find that he, he had a covenant with Abraham, he had a covenant with Noah, he had a covenant with Moses, and, and several of the covenants, a covenant with David. But, but there's one common element to all of those covenants is that we human beings... As a race, we often failed on our side of the bargain. God never failed on his side. We always <clears throat> failed on our side. So when Jeremiah talks about a new covenant coming, he's really indicating something that God is going to do fully and completely. He's going to take care of both sides of the equation. Uh, now, obviously, I think that we can respond to that grace that's given to us, but but that that is the reason why it took something Extra, something on extra on God's part to make it suitable where we wouldn't mess it up.
1: (laughs) Something extra. That's the yeah. Okay, I see. So, is the concept found? Is this concept found? the, The the atonement concept found in the Old Testament.
0: Oh, absolutely. The Old Testament is, is rich with atonement uh, mm-hmm. vocabulary. In fact, the word uh, Kepar in Hebrew means literally to atone. Uh, from this term, uh, we, other terms are developed such as uh, uh, Kepor, Keporet. Uh, Kaporet. I probably masquered that. But it means mercy seat. And uh, kippurim, which means atonement. Uh, and the greek new testament uses words such as a uh, helasterion which means mercy seat and a uh, helaskomai which means to make atonement so all of these have the similar the similar notion that uh, that things, whatever the sin is, that there's that there's a sacrifice to be made. That uh, you know, of course, in the Old Testament, it had to do with the sacrifice of bulls and lambs and different animals, and uh, the the priest would lay his hand upon that animal and and cast the sins into that animal, and it would be slaughtered, and it represented mm-hmm. the death of sin. Um, so, yeah, the Old Testament is enriched with, with atonement language uh, throughout its pages. And this continued over into the New Testament. And especially understanding of uh, this sacrificial lamb, uh, this lamb of God who would come. And, and there again, the question remains, what exactly would this lamb, Jesus, do on the cross? And how was that atonement made for people who come to salvation. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's really where the rubber meets the road when we talk about atonement, is because in in this section, how does that work? What is sin? What's being atoned? And what did Jesus do to make that access possible?
1: Mm-hmm. I'm going to touch on a couple of things real quick. Sure. One is when we understand the word "sin" that doesn't mean um, that doesn't mean a, a, a the, the definition didn't necessarily come as a bad thing or a um, as a uh, uh, total failure. It was simply a archery term meaning you missed the mark.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. But but let me add here the here too, Curtis. The way a person understand, and you're going to see this as we go through these different theories, the way a person understands sin will also impact the way the person understands the atonement. And then vice versa, the way you understand atonement will impact the way you understand sin. And you're really going to, especially with these first few theories we're going to talk about, you're going to really see how... The slant on the definition of sin and what that means really impacts what's being saved and what's being cleansed. Mm-hmm. So that's Perfect. a good that's, that's why, a good point.
1: That's why I brought that out because yeah. I wanted to make sure people understood sin. Not only marks us, it also shows that we miss the mark. Absolutely. <laughs> but um, but the other thing I wanted to say is. Point out is is the in the scriptures God sets aside specific day, the in 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 the Old Testament, in that that specific day is the day of atonement.
0: Yom Kippur. Yom
1: Kippur. Yeah, and it's that's a powerful thing because it's there's not only that it's it's a a, a typology a shadow yeah. of something to come.
2: Yeah, so, absolutely.
1: Something something that we uh, we we dig deep on this uh, on this particular I, podcast. I, so. <laughs> I,
0: I, I gotta since, since you went there, Curtis. I gotta say one more thing that I found that's absolutely fascinating: the temples itself, because you know there were several temples throughout mm-hmm. the pages of scripture. The temples right. themselves are a typology of the the courtroom of God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're going to see the ultimate temple when we enter into the throne room of God. That's going to be the ultimate holy of holies, because the mm-hmm. physical temple was a was a symbol, a typology of the actual spiritual heaven that is that is around the throne room of God, or that mm-hmm. is the throne room of God.
1: Isn't that crazy? How you were talking about the dispensational um, aspect of it, but you know, if you look at it. Um, At first it was it was a a burning bush. It was a it was a it was a talking to, you know, and then moved into, um, you know, Abraham was told you you're on holy ground. Right. And then as you go on, you're made into the tabernacle. Yeah. You know the so so it's a it's a tent essentially that that's just carried around and then you get to the temple and and, it, it, and all the way along
0: and that tabernacle it was representation of when God when when Moses was in the presence of God on Mount Sinai that holy mm-hmm. place that holy place where he was receiving the divine law where God even imprinted in the stone the laws his laws mm. for humanity
1: yeah. Man, we could go on forever. So, so is in Christian theology. How many theories of atonement have been developed?
0: Well, so far as I can tell, there are six major theories. Now, now some argue for seven, but I'm going to I'm going to just kind of limit this to six. Six major theories. These are six theories that uh, Millard Erickson talks about in his theology book. And you'll really find this in most theology books, no matter who writes them. But these are the six main uh, theories that we find on, on uh, atonement. And they are, the first one is the Socinian theory of atonement. The second one is the moral influence theory of atonement. The third one is the government theory of atonement. The, f- the fourth one is the Ransom Theory of Atonement. This is also known as the Christus Victor uh, Theory of Atonement. The, uh, the fifth one is the Satisfaction Theory of Atonement. Uh, and the last one is called the Penal Substitution Theory of Atonement. And so these are the six main theories of atonement that we're going to be talking through and going through uh, over the course of this podcast, and uh, actually this podcast and the next one. But again, I want to say that as we go through these, there are actually some elements of all of these theories that we could take and and help us to understand what God did, but there's one, in my opinion, that does the best job with with the the scripture, and we'll talk about that, especially next week as we look at the scriptural passages.
1: Mhm. So, what is Socinian? What is the Socinian theory?
0: Okay, so this that's is... one
1: I haven't heard. I haven't heard. I, I I've heard it, but I never heard much about it.
0: Well, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, you're not going to like it. Probably, <laughs> this was developed by uh, Faustus and uh, Lucinius Socinus. Sosin, uh, Socinius, Lord of Mercy, I had to be hate to be them in kindergarten. Uh, they lived in the 16th century, <laughs> and this this theory is often used by the Unitarian Church tradition. Uh, they argue that Christ did not serve as a priest but he served as a prophet. And the new covenant is absolute forgiveness on God's part, God-forgiving humanity rather than a substitutionary atonement. Uh, Christ's death is seen as valued in the sense that he served as the perfect example for us. Now, you have to understand here, that this is actually stemming from a very Pelagian thought process. Now, let me just, let's just take a time out for a moment. Calvinists will also often come at us non Calvinists, whether we be Molinist or uh, Provisionist or Classic Arminian or Wesleyan or Thomist or whatever the case may be, and we'll throw this out saying, uh, You guys are Pelagian. But if they use that argument, Curtis, you can look at them and say that you absolutely don't know what Pelagius taught. Because nine times out of ten, Hmm. they don't. Uh, And I'm not trying to be rude and crude against Calvinists, but this is just an ad hominem. Pelagius taught, and this was an adversary of Augustine of Hippo, Pelagius taught that you did not need the grace of God to be saved, that you could Hmm. just, it's almost as if everyone was born a blank slate. And everyone could choose to live a holy life unto God. So instead of God choosing you, you choose God. Now, for non-Calvinists, we say that people can respond to the grace of God, which is first given to us, that God's grace must first be given to us before we can ever respond. You can't respond to something that was not given. Okay, so you can respond by accepting or you can respond by rejecting. The work is totally and still completely God's and not ours. So this whole notion that non-Calvinists Teach Pelagianism is just a bunch of poppycock. It is not founded in a proper understanding of of what Pelagius taught uh, in any in any world uh, or you know whatsoever. Pelagius never taught that. Pelagius basically taught you don't need the grace of God. You can choose to be a good person. So understanding that, taking on the Pelagius thought process. The Socinian theory will argue that Christ served as the perfect example for us. So, when Christ went to the cross, when he died the way he did, that serves as the perfect example of the, of the way we should die, the way that we we should live our lives. He served as the perfect example, and that um, that we should follow in kind. So, the Socinian view shows two th- says two things about the uh, the death of Christ. One. The death of Christ shows the the genuine love of God. I think all of us would agree with that. Secondly, it inspires us to show that even God suffers as we do because of evil. Now, if there is anything that we can take, I think it's those two things. Now, when we say God suffers because of evil, I don't, you know, taking the Thomistic thought, you know, I don't think that God truly suffers the way we do, obviously, because He's God and we're human, but is he impacted, you know, even Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. He was impacted right. by by the weight of sin, and he is right. God come in flesh. So he was impacted mm-hmm. by by sin and evil, uh, just as we are. So I think there are some parallels there, but the question at the end of the day is, does the Socinian viewpoint totally encapsulate the teachings of Scripture? Well, we'll talk about that next week
1: mmm <laughs> well yeah I think you're right I'm not gonna like that one because nah. that, that has a that has a uh, a smell uh, of new age and progressive Christianity into it that
0: uh so you saying you smell mm. a skunk in the house
1: mm. oh, I, <laughs> yeah it, he's a few he's a few he's a few few fields off but I know he's coming <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh. <laughs> yeah. So, what is the moral? What is the moral influence theory?
0: Well, if you didn't like the first one, you're probably not going to like the second one. Uh, the The moral influence theory was developed by Peter Abelard and was further fleshed out. Uh, well, let me first of all say this was developed by Peter Abelard as a response to Anselm. Uh, but it was popularized later on by Horace Bushnell, uh, who lived from 1802 to 1876. Now, it's interesting. Very few people took on the moral influence theory until Bushnell repopularized it in the 19th century. Uh, So, while the Socinian viewpoint emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, the moral influence theory emphasizes his divinity. So, they emphasize God's love, Shows uh, shows that uh, 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 that humans human fears and ignorance of God is what needs rectifying, and not necessarily human sin. So, if sin's not what needs to be atoned, it's our ignorance of God and our fears that need rectifying. And so, what they're going to say is, when Christ came, uh, because humanity was so ignorant of God, Christ fully demonstrated God as he's God come in the flesh. And so God was fully displayed on the cross. Uh, so the, it impacted, it not only impacted, human. excuse me, the impact was on humanity and not on God. So the death of, of, of Christ on the cross impacted humanity, but it really didn't impact God in any way, shape, or form. So what does the cross do in the moral influence theory? Well, it does three things. The cross heals souls, rather than pays for sin. Well, actually, we're going to say four things. The cross heals souls rather than pays for sins. Two, it shows uh, the openness to God that can come through the cross. The deep conviction of sin. Now, it's interesting because it doesn't, solve the sin problem, but it will convict people of their sinful ways and so that they can consciously turn to God. And then, then fourthly, it provides inspiration on how people should live. So, it's really very similar to the Socinian viewpoint, but kind of repackaged in a different form.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: (laughs) The question, (laughs) does this totally encapsulate the scriptural uh, teachings of atonement? Again, we will... Find out more fully next week.
1: <laughs> that has a has a little bit of Buddhism and some other theories involved in that one.
0: But but notice here, notice here, Chris. I will say this: notice who the focus is on in these two theories, and mm-hmm. what I, what I mean by that: who does the saving in these two theories? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't seem like it's God doing the saving. Because now he's setting either the example. Uh, well, in both cases, he's setting an example. Uh, but but who does the saving? Well, in the Socinian viewpoint, the, the person, you know, this is kind of a Pelagian viewpoint, so a person just chooses God. The second one, Jesus serves as a perfect example. And so if you want to live the perfect example, then you can consciously take it upon yourself to live the perfect example, according to Peter Abelard and the moral influence theory.
1: Man, you know, I just got to say, Solomon was so right when he said, there's nothing new under the
0: sun. (laughs) Not a bit. Not a bit. And a lot of these theories have been out there for a while. Again, a lot of these theories have not really been picked up by the masses until later generations.
1: Yeah. Yeah. As if it's a new thought. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, So, what is the government theory of the atonement?
0: Now, here's also another thing you're going to find interesting as we go through this. As, as you follow the history of these different thoughts, they're often shaped by the type of government that was involved in the church at the time. Uh, it's really? interesting because early on, and, and we'll see this as when we get to the ransom theory, which is next. Uh, there, there was you know a persecuted church. It was, it was fighting against the powers of evil. Uh, then you have uh, later on you have more feudal systems that develop, and then by the time you get to the reformers, you have full blown monarchies that are established. And these governmental systems seem to impact the way people view atonement. Um, so it, I just found that interesting as I was going back through this material, which, to be honest with you, in full dis- disclosure, it's been a long time since I looked at these theories. So this has been really helpful to pick up the mantle and look at these again. So what is the government theory? This was proposed by Hugo, Hugo Grotius in the, um, for, who lived in, from 1583 to 1645. He emphasized the law of of God Now this view now I'm not saying all Methodists hold this view, but this is a view that's very popular in the Methodist Church. Uh, so it, sh- it see it sees God as holy and righteous and sin, human sin violates God's holy law. God however may forgive and relax his law, but uh, there, there needs to be um, something that will help solve and resolve that sin problem. So the cross serves as an example of what will happen to one who continues in sin. So Jesus clears the law standards so that people can be forgiven. So it's, it's not quite exactly the, the same thing that we would find where, where, where he takes up the sin of a person. But what it is is that through the cross of Christ, again, let me just clarify that not all Methodists hold this viewpoint, but in some Methodist circles it's, it's more popular than in others. But uh, Jesus clears the law standard so that people can be forgiven, and that is the way the cross is viewed in the government theory.
1: Hmm, that one, that one there. It kind of has, it kind of has some, uh, some, some. Like you said, it does have some attachment. As there's some truth there. There's something there that, that does kind of ring true. That's interesting. So, what is the ransom theory of the atonement, or the Christus Victor?
0: Yeah, it's also called Christus Victor. It's also called the substitution uh, substitution theory. Uh, we'll talk about a satisfaction theory, which is a little different. But this one is... Uh, This is interesting, Curtis. Until I went back and restudied this, I didn't realize this. This has often been called the classic view of the church as it seemed to dominate church history until the time of Anselm and Peter Abelard. Uh, There were two early developers of this theory, Oregon of Alexandria, which is a controversial figure, but he is generally recognized as being the first systematic theologian of the church, of course, outside of Jesus and the early apostles. I mean, they didn't really systematize. Well, Jesus did, I think. Some of the early writers may not have systematized all these things together, but Oregon was the first to start doing that. Gregory of Nyssa also developed the theory. Oregon saw history as one big cosmic drama. Uh, So you find the powers of Satan in the darkness fighting against the powers of God and and, and the, the power of light. On the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus completely defeated the powers of Satan and the forces of darkness. And this draws on a couple of passages of Scripture. The first, do you have a copy of Scripture with you? There, Curtis. Uh, okay. Yeah, I do. The first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. Uh, that they pull on this verse quite a bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 is the first
1: one. Okay, I'm there. So, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body.
0: Yeah. So, the question here is, who were we bought from? And so the 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 Christus Victor or ransom theory says suggests that we were held ransom by by the devil. God created creation good. The devil introduced sin. Which let me stop here and say I'm I'm kind of I've often wondered when the devil and his angels rebelled against God, because it seemed like even in the garden there, there seems to be that the that the fall had already occurred to some degree because Satan is already there. He's tempting Adam and Eve in the garden, asking them, did God really say, did he really mean what he said here? And so the question is, when did that celestial fall happen? That's a big question. So from that time forward, Adam and Eve were, were, were held under the sway of Satan, Oregon argues, and then he argued that Satan, he held... Humanity is captive. And so Jesus' death paid the ransom to Satan and Jesus' resurrection completely defeated the power that Satan held on humanity. While Oregon did, so, so the question here, here is, uh, did God pay a ransom to Satan through the death of Jesus? Now he also uses Matthew 20, verse 28. Uh, do, do you have that available? Matthew 20, verse 28.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm not. I didn't didn't have a chance to look that one up, so I'm kind of curious as to what that one, what that one says.
1: Yeah, I was just actually passed it and then went past it again and then passed it again. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you said verse eight of Matthew twenty.
0: Uh, twenty eight, Matthew twenty twenty eight. Oh, twenty.
1: So, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many.
0: Okay, so that, that's what they look at there again, using that whole term, ransom. So Jesus' death, in this view, paid the ransom to Satan. So the question is, the, the question that plagued individuals who held this theory, and Anselm of Canterbury really brought forth a, 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 a problem that he saw in this theory. It was, it was this. Did God use deceit to win humanity from the devil. And so God, who is holy and pure, could he be deceitful? Now, Oregon denied that there was any deceit that God used against Satan because he would say that Satan knew fully well what he was getting into. He may not have known the full extent of the consequences of what happened when Jesus died on the cross and certainly didn't anticipate a resurrection. He had no clue that was going to happen. Gregory of Nyssa would agree that that God did use a little deceit, but he argued that deception for an ultimate good is morally just. So uh, he looks at passages such as Job 41.1, where God talks about um, using hook and bait to pull up a leviathan and these massive monsters, which may have been cosmic powers of of darkness, that he's talking about wrangling up and... and, 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 uh, Maintaining or controlling or some sort, but uh, Gregory of Nyssa would argue that that it's okay to use deceit if the purpose is for ultimate good. So the best way to c- compare this would be likened to uh, German families who housed uh, Jews in um, during the time of the Nazi regime, and so they lied to the Nazis to say that they didn't have any Jews. But Because if, if they told the truth, then they would have come in and killed the Jews who were there. Um, so it's kind of a similar thing here, uh, Gregory of Nisa would say. But there is a question of whether God, if this, true, if this uh, model is true, whether God used deceit and uh, Anselm brings some other problems that he sees in the theory as he presents his own.
2: Hmm.
0: Hmm. So what are your thoughts on that one, just preliminary That's- thoughts?
1: Well that's a that's an interesting thought and all I could think was was, was yes, th- there may be sprinklings of that, you know, the ransom and so on in the scripture. but is that something we base a whole theory of atonement or theory of, of uh, a, a theological foundation on? You know, just is that throughout the whole scripture, or is it just a few verses? Is what I'm getting at.
0: Yeah, that's a million dollar question.
1: <laughs> so, so let's get into the next one, which is which is kind of close to it—the satisfaction theory.
0: So, the satisfaction theory. While while the ransom theory held the longest duration, um, l- let me say the satisfaction theory was right there along with it. Uh, This actually began, the satisfaction theory actually began with Augustine and Gregory of Nyssa. Gregory of Nyssa actually adopted uh, this form into his view of the ransom theory. Uh, But the satisfaction theory uh, was fully developed. It began with Augustine and Gregory of Nyssa, but it was fully developed by Anselm of Canterbury in 1033, who lived from 1033 to 1109. Now, let me pause here and remind you that Anselm of Canterbury is the the same guy who developed the first, for as far as we know, the first ontological argument for God, saying that God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. Okay? God is the, the, the highest, per- perfect, maximally great being, and there's no, no one higher than God. And so when you see in writings the term an Anselmian God, that's what's being referred, a maximally great God, that God than which nothing mm-hmm. greater could ever be mm-hmm. conceived. And so, so Anselm, when looking at, so he, he took this theory that began with Augustine and Gregory of Nyssa, and, and he's looking at this and he looks back at the ransom theory and he contends that something in God's nature needed to be atoned because it was God who had been offended by sin and and God was the one who, uh, who built a good creation. It was humanity. It was Satan. They're the ones who sinned against God. Okay? So Anselm rejected the ransom theory saying that God owned everything. So if God owned Satan, if God owned the demons both who were for him and against him, and God owned all of humanity, then Anselm would argue, then why in the world did God have to pay Satan anything to ransom something that was already his?
1: Yeah, just flick him on his head.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, So... So, he goes on to say that sin is the failure to give God what is due him. And he goes on to argue that we stole from God the honor that he is due. And so, God's violated honor can only be made right, Anselm says, by either punishing humanity or by accepting a satisfaction made on his behalf. And so, now... He also makes an argument that I find a little odd. Now, Anselm, I love the writings of Anselm. I love, I love his theology. He is just super rich in everything he writes. But he did write something that I found a little odd. He said that humans, some humans must be saved to replenish the number of angels lost by the fall. So he, he's going to argue that uh, only the number of people to make up for the number of angels who fail will be saved. Now, how many is that? No one knows. Now, the problem I have with <laughs> that, I'll just go ahead and say from, you know, even though we're not evaluating.
1: JW, <laughs> JWs have an idea.
0: Well, yeah, they would say what, uh, with 144,000, I think, I think it's the number they would give. Uh, Anselm, to my knowledge, never gave a specific number. In fact, I think he, and I may be wrong here, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he would, you know, I don't think he ever gave a number. But whatever that number of angels who fail, he would say that's the number of humans that would be saved. Um, but the satisfaction must be rendered on their behalf, and the cross and the resurrection established that satisfaction. Now, um... Here again, there's a little bit of a pro and a little bit of a con with this. We see that Anselm's argument, logically speaking, is, is very valid. But the question that we'll have to evaluate next week is whether or not this, this model completely meshes with the teachings of Scripture and whether the model really stands uh, in totality with, with uh, biblical teaching.
1: There's some, there's some, there's some good points in that, in that theory, um, you know, something has to be satisfied, um, and I think, yeah, there's, there's definitely some things, but, you know, um, it'd be curious to know what was going on historically as these, as these theories were being developed or, or actually carried through or walked through, to see what, um, what was going on in the in the people, what was going on in the thinkers, and what was going on in, in the culture of that time, you know, because there's some of that that falls into some medieval times, you know, as far as dating, that really kind of uh, make you wonder what what was really going on you know, during that time as these were being developed.
0: Well, now it's interesting you mentioned that because during the time of Anselm, um, a, a new form of government or a new form of um, society was developed. It was the feudal system. And so this is a system of political, economic, and social organization of the Middle Ages. Um, it's based on the holding of lands in fief mm-hmm. or, f- in, or fee, and on uh, the resulting relations between lord and vassal, so you had these l- landowners, and then the the uh, you know crop workers, people working the land, people working for these these uh, these owners, uh, the the feudal owners, and so there was this remuneration that was happening between landowners and you know and uh, and the workers, so there was kind of this satisfaction going on that if you know uh, I'm giving you this land, I own this land, I'm letting you use this land to bring in a crop, but you've got to pay me my due, you know, for the land that I already own. Now, could that have played some in with Anselm's thinking? Well, possibly, because notice that he he talks about how God owns everything. And, and he's right. God does own everything. He owns every, everything he created. He owns the copyright to it. So uh, he's absolutely right in that regard. Um, but that, that's a good point, because you do have this feudal system that's in full swing during the time of Anselm.
2: Hmm.
1: Interesting. So the, so the last one um, that we're going to cover is uh, the penal substitutionary theory.
0: So the penal sub—that's a weird name. The pe- penal substitution theory first uh, arose out of the Reformation. Okay, this was a Reformational idea, particularly found with John Calvin and Martin Luther. Now, while we're not Calvinists, we can still appreciate certain aspects of his theology. So, while we may I think he was, I mean, he
1: was all wrong.
0: No, yeah, absolutely. You know, just because he was bonkers on election and things of that nature doesn't mean he got everything wrong. Let me just say, I'm not a Calvinist, nor the son of a Calvinist, but I've read some of the institutions, uh, and you know, the institutes, I mean, and some of the stuff he writes is sheer genius. I, I've got to give him his due. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff, he's dead on the money. So while I don't hold to his soteriology, I can appreciate other aspects. So, you know, right. just, just keep that in mind. Well, Martin Luther is the same way with him. I mean, he yeah. had some kind of racist things he said against Jewish people. But does that mean he was wrong on everything he said? No, I I think he had some good points on certain things. Obviously not with racial relations, uh, but Mm -hmm. uh, that's a whole other story. Here's another interesting tidbit here, Curtis, I found uh, through this as well. A lot of the guys who were involved with atonement theories, interesting to note, they were also lawyers. John Calvin was not only a theologian, but he was also a lawyer as well. Mm -hmm. And so he is going to look at this... From the, from the aspect of law. So it's the penal yeah. substitution theory is very similar to Anselm's view, except that Calvin viewed substitution not from the need of satisfying God's violated honor, but rather from the sin that broke God's law, God's moral, holy law. So for Calvin and the Reformers, Christ bore the penalty for human sin, accepting the punishment that humans rightly deserved, bearing that, that weight of that punishment on his back, so that the people who, uh, well, we would say, would respond to God's grace, he would say, who are the elect of God, would be saved according to the glory and honor of God. And so next week we're going to talk about this in more detail. The Penal substitution uh, consists of uh, topics such as sacrifice, propitiation, uh, substitution uh so the substitution is in there uh and uh and reconciliation these are f- four of the main tenets of penal substitution of uh, penal yes penal substitution theory uh as uh and and we're gonna again look next week at the scriptures to see what we find uh what the scriptures say regarding uh the whole aspect of atonement
1: yeah well that one's sure um kind of walks along the lines of uh, of of what you would see um, some of the scripture saying you know um, in in uh, in these things so yeah there's there's definitely some really good uh, theories and thoughts as we got down into the last just the last three essentially um, some of those others I would have to say yeah they're they're kind of uh, kind of wonky.
0: Yeah, and I agree with you, Curtis. I think the last three, if I had to choose, which I know next week we're going to talk about, you know, all the theories, we're going to we'll choose the one that best fits Scripture. But if we had to give a top three, just from the six we went over, I'm with you. I would say ransom, A.K.A. Christus Victor, ransom theory, satisfaction theory, and penal substitution theory. Those three would be the top three. Just, just from looking right. at the preliminary viewpoint.
1: yeah well, that's some good stuff. So well there you have it folks um, tune in next uh, next week as we go into describing these uh, these atonement theories and uh, and I hope I hope this uh, really is something that you're taking in writing down and actually getting, uh, getting involvement with and, and really taking in the, the research that's gone on to this. Um, this is some big stuff so we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us and we value that time our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith and we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and and make this place into a reliable source of information join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast and until next time Brian and I say hold your What's own on, friends
2: Hi, I'm Dave Baggett. I'm the director of the Center for the Foundations of Ethics, previously called the Center for Moral Apologetics, at Houston Baptist University, which in this fraught cultural moment of eroding moral foundations, exists to explore the ultimate questions about ethics. What explains intrinsic human value, for example, or what accounts for authoritative moral obligations or essential human equality or basic human rights? We aim to foster a community of scholars from an array of disciplines to delve into these questions with care and rigor. In the process, we hope to highlight the evidential significance of bedrock and axiomatic moral truths when it comes to matters of the human condition and ultimate reality. In June of 2022, we will be kicking off our certificate program in moral apologetics, a four-course sequence on the history of the moral argument a course defending moral realism, a course defining and defending theistic ethics, and a course that reveals the shortcomings of secular ethical theories. So check it out on the HBU website and at our own website, MoralApologetics.com.
0: Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today.